Good morning, everybody. Uh, you're all so joyous this morning. I wonder what happened. So, I want to take you back. It's uh, nine, is it 18? What year is it? It's um, 1879, long time ago. Uh, it's January. The British have decided to invade Zululand with a column of 4,000 soldiers uh, without the expressed permission of the Queen, nor does the Prime Minister of Britain know that this general has decided to invade Zululand. And so they march into Zululand. They set up camp next to what they, the, 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 the Welsh um, soldiers of the time say looked like a sphinx head. And so they set up camp. And as they're setting up camp, uh, word comes to the, 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 the leader of that particular column to say that there were some fires in the mountains. And that's probably where the main Zulu army is. And so this uh, general takes 1,500 of his troops to go and investigate these fires in the mountains, thinking that he's going to engage with the Zulu army and come back victoriously. The next morning as the sun rises, uh, there's some news that there was some Zulu seen up on the ridge. And so the commander of that, second in command, says he sent 17 men on horseback to go and investigate what was happening on the ridge. I'm giving you a very abbreviated version of the story, just by the way. And so when they get up onto the ridge, these 17 men lose sight of the Zulu. And so they're looking around, and eventually they get to the edge of the cliff. And in the valley are 25,000 Zulu MP warriors sitting on their shields, waiting for the command to attack the British army. These 17 soldiers get off their horses. They aim into the crowd. I don't know what they were thinking. Either stupid or very brave. And they let a shot off into that group of 25,000 Zulu warriors. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the start of the Battle of Isangwana. 5,000 Zulu men become the left horn of that famous Shaka Zulu uh, uh, buffalo horn attack. So 5,000 start running this way. We hear the accounts from one particular soldier on the battlefield that said when he saw the first horn of the Zulus coming, it was like a massive snake that was coming. The next horn of 5,000 men went the other way, and they, their job was to cut off any retreating British soldiers. Remember King Tutuayo, did I say it correctly? I probably murdered his name. There. Yeah. Instituted an old Zulu thing saying that if your spear hasn't tasted the blood of somebody, you may not get married. So these 25,000 Zulu young men were hungry for some, right. So the left horn, the right horn is that way. 15,000 of the main Zulu army, the, the head of the buffalo, come onto a ridge and they're standing there with their impressive spears. And when they open their spears, their shields, when they open their shields, that 15,000 now look like 30,000 Zulus. And they start going, zoom. See, the ground begins to even tremble, and they start to run down at these British soldiers. Now, these British soldiers are armed with what you call martini rifles at the time. This is similar to the way we hunt with, with uh, lion, uh, not lion, buffalo and elephant. And so when they let a shot off, it doesn't take out one man. It doesn't take out two men. It takes three, four men. And so the first line of Zulu impis that come down are met with a wall of lead. They drop to the ground. They continue. And I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But all to say that eventually the Zulu army 
break down the front line of the British soldiers. And only about 56 soldiers of the British army make it off the battlefield that day. It is said that it's the biggest defeat the British army has ever felt. Remember that these Zulu warriors only had a shield, a knobkiri, and a spear. And they defeated the British that day. And like I said, this is an abbreviated version of an incredible story. And if you want to know more, I encourage you to go to Rourke's Drift to find out more about what happened subsequently after this. But in Ephesians 6, Ephesians reminds us that there's been another battle that's been raging for thousands of years. And just like in the Battle of Isandwana, when that guy let a shot off into the Zulu army on the ground, when the fall of man happens in Genesis 3, this great battle starts. And throughout the Old Testament, we are reminded over and over through the lives of people in the Old Testament about this great battle, where it's the walls of Jericho, where it's the woman and the oil. Throughout the Old Testament, story after story, we see this battle playing out. In the New Testament, it is then played out again with Jesus and his disciples. As Jesus is casting out demons and healing the sick and setting captives free, he's engaged in a mighty battle. And on the cross, something special happens, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And then the early church is involved in this battle. For thousands of years, we've been fighting. And if we think about uh, church leaders that have been involved in bringing down slavery, if we think about church leaders that when young people were, were at a miss, Youth for Christ would start in an organization that would impact the world because of young people. And, and if we think about leaders in education, healthcare, lots of them are Christians on the front line of the battle. Yeah. I want to say that in this church, we have people on the front line of this battle. If I think about Tandanani and Charlie and every volunteer that is fighting for the honor of homeless people in this church. If I think about the hundreds of people that are involved in the havens, fighting for the safety of our young people, the most vulnerable in our society, they're on the front line. If we think about our kids' church and youth, fighting for the souls of our young people. If we think about our campuses, where they are fighting on the battlegrounds for the hearts and minds of our students. And everywhere in this church I look, I see people on the front line in a battle. And you might be in a battle for your marriage today, you are on the front line. You might be in a battle today because of your health and you're fighting for your life. You are on the front line this morning. And so each and every one of us are involved in a battle whether you like it or not. And Ephesians 6, 18 says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the, power, uh, in the might of his power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that we can stand, so that when the, when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground. And after done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, which will extinguish the all the fiery arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, all kinds of prayers, all kinds of requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for the Lord's people. 
Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning, Lord Father God. We want to thank you, Lord, that we are not alone in this battle that we fight, Lord Father God. And Father, we want to thank you that your word this morning has given us a clear strategy how to fight this battle. And so, Father, make us open to things that we maybe not have seen in the scripture before, Lord Father God. We thank you in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians, over the last couple of months, well, not months, weeks, we've been talking about the different images of the church. And Paul starts Ephesians 6.10 by saying, finally, even knowing that the church is a family and that we are adopted into this family, uh, we need to be aware that also that as a church, we are a temple. And that we remember some said we have name tags, we belong. And that we have shoelaces that we are tied together and that we have Jesus. And Lareko reminding us that the church is a bride and that we should submit to God to be part of this great uh, mission that he's put on us. To say finally, another way to say finally is to say in light of all these things, in light of all these things, we need to be aware that we're in a war, right? And that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against rulers, uh, but against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces in heavenly realms. And our enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's been equipped to do that. And so in Ephesians, he tells us how do we withstand this enemy that has come to kill, steal, and destroy him. And so when I first got the idea of being given the opportunity to preach this message, you know where I jumped straight to? I went straight to the armor of God. And then I said, okay, maybe it's important to do some reading about this. And when I started reading, I couldn't believe that I missed it. That in Ephesians 13, 6, 13, there's this important word that says, be strong. And so I think often we jump to the armor before actually doing some groundwork before we put the armor on. Now, in honesty, if I were to join the military as I am now, put a bulletproof vest on, a big gun, and a small little backpack came off. Those little backpacks are small. But one of those massive backpacks, I wouldn't make it out of the door, right? And so often, um, when you join the army or any like elite military kind of thing, they put you through this thing called basic training. And like, what on earth has push-ups got to do with going to war? Star jumps, all those kind of things. But it's about becoming strong. So that when you have that armor on, you can make it beyond the door. And it's also about giving you training on how to use those weapons. Because I promise, if you give me a tank as I am now, I'm going to cause more harm than good. And I often think we have Christians running around, uh, untrained, and we're inflicting our own damages on our own people because we've been given this weaponry that we don't know how to use. And so we are, we are not strong, we're weak in the Lord. And so Ephesians 6, 13 says we need to become strong. And ladies and gentlemen, or I should say brothers and sisters, we're in a house that provides basic training ongoing. And if you've never been part of any basic training, I encourage you this morning to get involved in one of these things. Victory Weekend, Grow Courses, Leadership 115, 215, The Purple Book. I encourage you to get baptized in the water and in the Spirit. Those are the things that make us strong. So that when we go out to battle, we are ready to use the armory that God has given us. Now, I have some very mature Christians sitting around just saying, I've done that. If you think this is all just a once-off event, you're wrong. Because when, when you become the top of your game, let's take the Springboks, they're fresh in our mind. Now, they could have said we're at the top of our game. We didn't need to put an extra practice in on Thursday. 
we're the best of the best. We know we're going to do this. If they didn't do that, they probably wouldn't have won. Think about the best athletes in the world. They don't need to practice, but they do because they need to keep on being strong. And so no matter how mature you are in the Lord, these basics are important. They keep us strong so we don't become lazy and lethargic. The second thing that happens is that we need to stand. Ephesians 13 says you may, that you may be able to stand your ground. After having done everything, stand. There's something really powerful about an individual that stands. Uh, every movie I've ever watched, like these epic battles, Braveheart, what does he say? Stand. Don't run after the enemy. In some ways, I think when we run after the enemy, we weaken our position. And so we should stand, nor should we retreat. Going back to the Zulu army, if you got back to Ushaka with uh, cuts on your back, it would be better to have died on the battlefield. There was no retreating. So you, you could have wounds on your front, but nothing on your back. You'd be in trouble, right? And so nor are we called to retreat. We are called to stand and stand strong. And so I think wherever we find ourselves, remember to stand. And the standing reminds me of a story most of you might know. It's a story about a battleship that says to the ship in front of them, the commander of the ship says, tell the ship in front of us to move seven degrees to the left. The response is prompt. You move seven degrees to the left. So the captain of the ship says, well, I'm a little bit indignified by that. Tell them that, um, that I'm the admiral of the navy. You need to move your ship seven degrees to the left. The response is just as quick. Um, I'm a seaman, ordinary soldier. Move your ship seven degrees to the left. And so this admiral now says, well, I'm a battleship. I'm the biggest battleship around. Move your ship seven degrees to the left. And you know what the response is. I'm a lighthouse. Move your ship seven degrees to the left. And so when the culture, I came up with this term last night, when the, the battleship of culture tells us that we need to move our ship seven degrees to the left, we cannot. We have to remain strong because we are a lighthouse. We cannot do anything else. We are immovable on certain issues. I am immovable. I am an unmovable object when it comes to injustice, when it comes to racism, when it comes to sexism. I'm unmovable. I will not move. I'm a lighthouse. I will stand for principles. When it comes to my family, I will stand for my principles. I will not be shaken. I will not be moved. And so the question is, what are you standing for? What are those things where you are a lighthouse and you are unmovable? You will stand your ground no matter what comes your way. And throughout Scripture, it tells us that we need to stand. Now, I remember the first time I went to karate lessons. I only got to green belt, and there's a whole story behind that. But the first thing you learned in karate was how to stand. You had to stand with your feet apart, and you need to stand with your first thing like this with your knees, and there's a whole bunch of other things. I'm not going to do a karate lesson. But you have to stand. And so when we stand in the Scripture, it's about standing in God's grace. It's about standing on the gospel, standing in courage and in strength. Standing in faith, standing in our freedom, standing in our unity that we will not be shaken, standing in the strength of the Lord, and standing in His perfect perfection that we will stand in God's will. And when we stand in God's will, we become unshakable, unmovable in any way, shape, or form. And we haven't even got into the spirit, the armor of God yet. So remember, we need to strengthen ourselves, 
Secondly, we need to stand. And once we've done that, then, ladies and gentlemen, we can put on the full armor of God. Ephesians 13. Put on the full armor of God. And again, I just wanted to jump over, but there's a small little word there. It says full. And that's a bit discomforting. So I'm a social justice warrior. The shoes of peace really work for me. Like I'm really encouraged by the shoes of peace, fixing what is wrong in the world. And the breastplate of righteousness is a little bit inconvenient, a little uncomfortable. The belt of truth is inconvenient. And so if I were to just put on the boots of peace and go into battle without a belt, best case scenario is that I get, you know, people always like, oh, my pants are falling down, right? That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, in the midst of the battle, my pants could come right off, right? And so when we go into battle, we need to put on the full armor of God, the things that we think are irrelevant and even the things we don't think are relevant. I'm reminded of Samuel, not Samuel, Saul, 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 no, Samson, Samson, sorry, all the S's, you know, all, all them. So Samson, he was really diligent when it came for fighting for Israel, for the rights of Israel, to undoing the justices. But there were a couple of other places in his life that he just didn't live his fullness. And so he didn't pull everything that God had for him. And I think many ways that was his undoing. And so this morning, I'm encouraging you to say, put on the full armor of God. And so the first bit of armor is the belt of truth. Now, there's a funny thing. We, as human beings, have a funny relationship with the truth. Because we all say we want the truth, right? But I'm reminded of that great movie, um, uh, A Few Good Men, where Tom Cruise's character is, uh, is, is taking on this general and says, tell us the truth. And the general's response is, you want the truth? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. And ignorance is bliss. We really like ignorance. How many of us enjoy, like look forward to going to visit a doctor? How many of us skip into the doctor's rooms? Not really. And the reason why we don't like visiting a doctor is because the doctor tells us the truth. Right? And so if I went to the doctor and said, Quinter, you've got three months to live, I'd say, what happened? He said, you, ate, you drank too much Coke when you were young. If you continue to drink, and I, I, you know what my response would be? I didn't know. If only I knew, I would have stopped 10 years ago. But when I go to the doctor now and say, oh, I'm not feeling that well, and the doctor looks at me and says, right, if you continue to drink Coke at this pace, you, you're going to die in 10 years' time. In 10 years' time, I can't say, I didn't know. And so for many of us, the truth is inconvenient because if I know something, ha. Oh, I have to act on it. And so many of my compadres with the same kind of pigmentation that I have, and particularly the work that I do, I will go into a session and talk about diversity and inclusion, and I have a lot of people coming up to me, Quentin, if I knew, I would have done something, but I didn't know. And so ignorance allows us not to act. What are you ignorant about today? What are you choosing not to see so that you don't have to act? So when you're old and gray and your kids come and say, Mom and Dad, did you know about this environment thing? Are we going to say, oh, I didn't know? Or are we going to act? The interesting thing about having the belt of truth is that a Roman soldier would take that red cloak, cloak that they had and they would tuck it in, which would allow them to move freely on the battlefield. And so when we take the truth, the belt of truth, and we put it on, we begin to say, what's the truth of who I am? We begin to see ourselves in the true light of who Jesus sees ourselves. We're not a worm. We're not small. We're not under, underlined. And so we know that we're the head and not the tail. We are more than conquerors. We can quote those things because we put the truth in and it, and it heeds us. 
nor do we think ourselves more holy than we are. And it's interesting, I've been listening to something that uh, Kanye West has brought out, a new gospel album, right? Rocking it. If you read some of the lines in it, one of the songs says, the first people to judge him will be us. We will be the first people to call him out because of our righteousness. And so when we put this belt of truth and the cloak in, we don't see ourselves higher than what we are. The other interesting thing about the belt is that all those pieces start to hook onto that belt. The next one is the, the breastplate of righteousness. For me, this is the most uncomfortable one. It feels like uncomfortable even if thinking about it. But the breastplate of righteousness in the soldiers was there to protect their main organs, particularly their heart. And I want to talk about protecting our heart. And so the breastplate of righteousness protects our heart so we don't have to protect our heart. The Lord protects our heart so we don't have to protect it ourselves. Because the way we protect our heart is really inefficient. The way we protect our heart is to tune it down, to numb it, not to feel. And we drink, we take drugs so that we don't have to feel that pain. And we eat when we shouldn't be eating so we can numb that pain. And we spend money that we don't have so that we can numb that pain. And in some cases, we take our heart and we put it in a special place where nobody can touch. And Kath, thanks for sharing this incredible quote. That if you want to keep it intact, your heart, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around your hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of selfishness. But... In that casket, safe and dark, motionless and airless, it will change. It'll become, it won't be broken, but it'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. And I see many people walking around with their heart in a coffin far, far away, not wanting to feel. And we've almost become the walking dead. We walk in here and we're dead to anything that's happening around us. No joy, no sadness, it's completely dead. And I have news for you today, that there is nothing that is not, there's nothing that is not redeemable for our God. My God will find your heart and change it. There's nothing that will separate us from the life of God, the love of God. And so this morning when we think about putting the breastplate of righteousness on, we put the breastplate of righteousness on and it says, when I put that on, it said, Lord, I'm lovable. Lord, I'm worthy. Lord, I am enough. I don't have to do anything to please you. And so the breastplate of righteousness protects our hearts. And then there's Ephesians 6.15. Shod your feet with the preparation of peace. I think when Paul was talking about it, he was talking about all stars as the shoes of peace. There's something interesting about shoes. That one day, if you were a slave, it was illegal for you to wear shoes. And so you had to walk around barefoot. And the day that you were set free, your master would give him a pair of your shoes. And when you put your master's shoes on, it was a sign of your freedom. Isn't that a powerful statement? That each and every one of us here that have taken on the gospel, our master has given us his shoes. And we are now his peacemakers with his shoes on. And so wherever we walk, we walk in with this gospel of peace. This gospel of saying we'll make things right where they're wrong. Where the speed, we'll be, in essence, I thought about us as being boots on the ground of peacekeepers. And we walk in our master's shoes wherever 
we go. So that's such a powerful analogy of what it means to walk in the footprints of our master. And so the, foot, the, the gospel of peace. The shield is the first part of the armor that we have to pick up. The rest of the armor is on us all the time. And this is the first one we pick up. And when I was thinking about that, I think often we misuse faith all the time. We say to people, brothers and sisters, just have faith. Just have faith. And maybe they don't need to just have faith. And so we misuse our faith at times. And the shield of faith was to put it up so that when the enemy fired those fiery darts at us, we could put the shield up and it would protect us. And so this is not the accurate image of the shield. It was more like this kind of shield, a full body shield that you'd be able to hide behind. And when those fiery darts would come, those darts were not intended to kill the enemy. They were intended to distract the enemy, to make the enemy feel the fire coming down, hitting, the, and the, the temptation was to drop your shield because you could feel the heat of the, sh- the arrows. You could hear the, the banging of the arrows on the shield and, and you would be tempted to drop it, exposing yourself to full attack from the enemy. And so when the enemy comes to us with fear, with doubt, we put our shield up. But the shield is not effective like this. The shield is meant to be used like this. That when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we put our shields up together and we become tighter as a unit. We become impenetrable by the fear and doubts that come our way. And so the first sign of somebody that is struggling in faith is when a person leaves a connect group. When a person drops their shield, they leave the connect group because they cannot take the stuff that's coming. And what we did this morning was when I came in here, my faith might have been low. But when I stand next to Simon and Debbie and they start worshiping, they're lifting their shields of faith. And I begin to see that I can lift my shield too. And so when we start to say things like, oh, church, is there really any use of this? It's an indication that the fiery darts are coming your way. And it's an indication that you need to put your shield up. But not by yourself, with other people so that we can stand together. Then we become effective. And then there's the helmet of salvation. Uh, Maybe some rugby players should have worn the helmets uh, during the game, right? Because you know what happens when you get hit in the head. You become dazed and confused and you don't know where you're going. And and you almost get a concussion. I wonder how many of us have spiritual concussion. Not sure where we are, what we stand for. And so when we put the helmet of salvation on, it stops the enemy from hitting our head and being confused and dazed. But the other thing that the helmet did was that Roman soldiers had this funny silver, not silver, this like red thing or black thing or blue thing on the top of the head. And that was an indication of identity. And so when we put the helmet of salvation on, I can identify you. I can say that we are together in this. And it speaks about belonging. And so when we are together, we belong together with the helmet of salvation. Finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I did think about whether I should use it, but I think that this is a lifesaver and this is uh, the real sword, right? Just in case people are wondering. The sword is the first part of the weaponry that is offensive. Not the, the rest of the armor is very defensive. It helps us stand. But the sword is the first one that we use to fight, which is interesting for me. The second thing is, because we use it to fight, we need to know how to use this thing. So often, you know how we use this Bible? We put it next to our bed. It'll protect me when I sleep. And when the evil one comes, I will pull my Satan and I use the Bible. And maybe I throw it at somebody. 
but we don't know how to use the word. And so when the evil one comes, we pull it out, and we've never been practicing those, those things, right? And so when the evil one comes, we become really ineffective. And we start doing the things that Rekho spoke about last week, that we become Bible-bruising Christians, where we bruise other people because we don't know how to use the Word of God. And so we need to learn how to use it. In those times when nobody's watching, just practice. Just practice. Because when the evil one comes, we can like be the greatest hero when Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Early on in my walk with Christ, I used to um, have a wallet. I used to have a wallet. They have things of the past. Inside my wallet, I would have seven scriptures that I would be able to read if I felt unloved, if I felt like I wasn't going to have provision. I'd pull my wallet out. My seven scriptures would be there, and they would encourage me, and I'd be able to fight off those thoughts that would come into my mind. And so I think we need to go back to some of those basics of just fighting the evil one. Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, all kinds of prayers, all kinds of requests. And this is amazing. Pray loud, pray quietly. Pray with groups, pray by yourself. Pray in the Spirit, pray in languages that you can understand. Pray while you're driving, while you're sleeping. But Ephesians says, pray all the time. And so that's the fourth thing we need to pray, 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 pray. And the final thing, in Ephesians 18, always keep the Lord's people in prayer. So there was a turning point in the battle of Isandwana. The Zulus are now charging down. They met with this wall of lead. And as they met with this wall of lead, remember when you're fighting those regiments, you're fighting with your uncles and your cousins and your brothers. And so when you're fighting and that wall of lead is coming, the people that are falling next to you are not far from you. They're your uncles. They're your nephews. People you love dearly. And there was a, a time in the battle where the Zulus couldn't take on this wall of lead anymore. And they started to turn and just started to become fearful. The guy's name eludes me for the moment. But an old general, 75 years old, stands up and he starts shouting that King never sent us here to retreat. The king never sent us to the battleground so that we could run home, but he sent us to fight. And he does one of those epic uh, stories on the battlefield. And as he's busy encouraging the troops, he gets shot, dies on the spot. And with that, a new courage comes into the soldiers, the war turns, and the Zulus win the war. And so this battle that's been raging for thousands of years had a turning point. That turning point was the cross. That when Jesus died on the cross, he said to each and every one of us that that is the turning point in the battle. If you watched the rugby game yesterday, did you notice? There was a certain point in the rugby game when the Springboks knew they had won. They didn't just walk off the field and say, we've won. Let's get the trophy. For the next 15 minutes, they played just as hard. And the tendency is that me and you can look at the cross and say we've won and walk off the battlefield. And say that these orphans are your story. That these homeless men are yours. Your marriage is, I'm not interested. But we need to fight for the last 15 minutes of this battlefield. We need to fight. We need to continue to fight. And so as we wrap up this morning, if you've walked in here this morning, you don't have the breastplate of righteousness. You've put your heart in a coffin so far away that feels that it's unretrievable, unredeemable. Nobody would ever want to look at it. I want to say that there's something different waiting for you this morning.
And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, I want to give you the opportunity today. Say, Lord, I want to give you my heart. I want to give you that broken heart, crushed heart, and I want to give it to you. And then also, I want to encourage people this morning that if, um, if you're in the battle, you're fighting for your life, fighting for your health, fighting for your marriage, and you're just feeling like the battle's end, like you're about to just retreat, let the words of the Holy Spirit rest with us, our helper, that you can do it. And you don't have to do this alone. This, after, this morning, there are going to be people up here willing to pray with you, to stand with you in the battle, to pray a word of encouragement with you that you know that you don't need to do this alone. Shall we stand to our feet as we close this morning? <clears throat> Father, we want to we thank you this morning, Lord Father God that you've made us aware that we're all in a battle and we're all fighting something. And I hope this morning, Lord Father God, that you would remind us that we're not alone, that we have brothers and sisters that will fight with us. We have people that will walk this journey with us, Lord. Father, I pray for anybody in this room, Lord Father God, that has taken their heart put it in a hole so deep that they have no need and understanding of what it feels like to feel alive again. Father, I want to give anybody that's like that in this room this opportunity, Lord, for you to get hold of their heart. And so if you're in this room today and you've put your heart so far away from God, whether first time or you're an old Christian, but you put your heart far away from God, I'm going to ask you not even to put up your hand, but to come forward so that God can take that heart and make it pliable again, so that He can mold it into the heart that you want Him to have it. So if you're here this morning, I'm going to encourage you to come forward. Thank you, Jesus. Father, then, I want to thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done. Thank you that you'll go with us this week, Lord Father God, that when we go into the battle, you will go with us and that we can walk in your victory. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and who you're making us to become. And in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Let's give God a big round of praise. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. And let's give Quentin a round of applause as well for taking time and study the Word and share the Word with us.